good to us. Thank you for being a God that has treated us with such benevolence in our natural lives and in our spiritual lives. In your son's name, amen. Now the end of 2 Timothy, uh, second chapter that we were in last week, we were talking about um, the distinctions that we sometimes need to make and how St. Paul, in setting you apart, setting Timothy apart in his mind, he wants it to be on certain categories. It's not merely does he ascribe to the Apostles' Creed or something. It says, the Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. The Lord knows you. And two, is the effect of the Lord knowing you that you have turned to holiness, righteousness. Because in many ways we are, I don't want to speak ill of the history of the church, but the church has not always been astute, asking the right questions, not putting the right things on the table for us to concern ourselves with, and we don't always know what question, how we answer the question, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. How do I do that? How can I be sure the Lord knows those who are his? How do I know that I am his? He knows if I'm his. The Lord knows. So as we go through the scriptures, you know, in your own private reading, you're looking for, I don't know, guides to your thought, ways to arrange the decorations, arrange the patio furniture, looking for the fashioning of your life furniture, how you put things together. And right after that verse, anyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity, verse 20, right at the top of the right-hand side there on your notes today, <laughs> says, in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and earthenware, and some for noble use, some for ignoble. You know what we're talking about. You know what? I don't want you to suddenly think of, I think I made a note to it, it was Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, where it talks about the household of faith has you know, different members, some more honorable than others. But everyone down to the bottom, the, the least honorable thing in Corinthians is treated with greater honor because of its inferior status, because that's the way a body works. This image in Timothy is different. Don't think that, well, you know, I'm just one of the wooden earthenware vessels and I want to be a you know, contribution to the, you don't get to be that, not in this illustration. The ignobleness, years ago when we bought the big house, there was an auction before we got into the house that sold off all the stuff. It had been a shelter care home for ambulatory old folks, and consequently, there was quite a few, what shall we call them, chamber pots 
which Leslie bought a case of. Because she thought they were charming. Porcelain, you know, little handles on them. You know what chamber parts are, you, you modern millennial pieces of work. Um, you have to do your business in a pot and carry it out to the outhouse later in the day. You don't serve punch out of them. Okay? You, you, not a, we have, I don't believe, ever served punch. I mean, they've been, not been chamber pots for a long time. Over 40 years. And you'd think you could have cleaned it enough, but no. Because you know what it is. It's an ignoble pot. And if you came over to my house, say, I, this is a little scatological, Evan. I don't like sermons that are scatological. Okay, so you come over to the porch one summer evening. Leslie's about to serve something, and she grabs all the ashtrays, knocks the ashes out, says, just a second, I'll get you all a drink. And you're hoping she's going to go in and leave the ashtrays inside because the ignoble thing of an ash bin is different than something you would drink your Coca-Cola out of. Something that is ignoble, garbage-oriented, has to be purified in order for it to be of noble use. It can't just say, I'm noble in my own status. That's true in the membership of the body of Christ. That's true with our different gifts. Some people have more, you might say, superior gifts than others, but we know the body welcomes all the gifts for the good of the body. But this instruction is telling Timothy to purify, verse 21, if anyone purifies himself from what is ignoble, then he will be a vessel for noble use, consecrated and useful to the master of the house, ready for any good work. You know, some women with that decorating Jones on or they go off to Hobby Lobby and they just little get out of control. They love having those, well, I'm going to have a party and we're all, this is a few years old, I realize it's not a current trend. We're all going to drink out of mason jars. What are you, like primitives? What are you, you, you Appalachian hill apes? What's your problem? They do make glasses. They sell them at Walgreens. You could buy glasses without a screw top edge on the top but no it's 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 trying to do something the ignoble task that which is storing your tomatoes for the winter you're now going to serve moonshine out of which is a noble use but you have to purify nobody says i'll just knock the big chunks of tomato out of my Mason jar, serve you up a drink. You're going to want to wash it a few times, perhaps. Put it in the Hobart and just steam that thing to death. Because to be ready for any good work, you have to not be ignoble. You can't take pride in this. You can't say, I'm just one of the guys. You might be in the other category, the 1 Corinthians 12 category, but not in this one. You want to purify. Because consecrated, that means set apart, 
set apart for a good work. If you want to be a benefit to the body, even the inferior parts of the body have to go through this. You want all the utensils to be clean. You don't want any of the Christians in the body to be the chamber pots of the body. The ash bins. Now, this is just an illustration. Same one. I'm, I'm speaking of it. The ignoble use is really the chamber pot thing. That what they're talking about is <laughs> the necessary <clears throat> uh, bucketing of your um, waste products. And everyone has always known it was unclean. Everyone has always known they had to deal with it. And you could laugh about it or all sorts of things. But still, you're not you know, making a wedding cake for your daughter out of the same bucket. So how do you be ready? We, we, we're always asking the question, we know the good thing. It's a nice illustration, Evan. It's a good thing to not be a chamber pot for Jesus. And it's a good thing to be a crystal chamber, uh, you know, punch bowl. Something, something nice. Well, he tells you, verse 22. So, shun youthful passions. Got it? Easy. Our work here is done. Because you know what? The youth are, you know what? This is why I've never been called to youth ministry. Because I have such an awful view of them. Now, those that have purified them, Timothy is one of the youth. He's a youth that St. Paul had picked up in his ministry. Um, And so the idea he is telling Timothy is not telling some other old fundamentalist Baptist pastor to shun his youthful passions. He's telling a young man to shun his youthful passions. Because that's precisely the problem. That is the chamber pot. But in our society, every other voice is telling us, follow your passions. The the passions rewarded are the things that you want the most in life. And St. Paul's telling him, no, stay away from that stuff and aim at righteousness. Faith, love, and peace. Now, when you hear something like faith, love, and peace, and righteousness, all of those words are so central, non-interesting words. They're really not interesting. They're so obviously right in the middle of each of those elements of godliness that you know that love and faith and peace and righteousness doesn't help you, doesn't trigger anything in your mind. But it should because the scriptures do define these things and you should have a definition for each of these things that your working definition because it told you to pick these up, to aim at these and to not do this. So what is a youthful passion? First off, get that worked out. Because it's not a matter of just you wishing you could be good and just saying, well, you know, I'm young and I've got my, my, all my, my plans and my urges and I'm really wanting things to turn out, uh, th- serving those things, and I make enough money, I meet the right girl, meet the right guy, always have cool bands to listen to. What is the youthful passions that you're supposed to set aside? 
What were you like when you hit your youth? And when we, when we were talking to people, now this is just a suggestion, this is just a supposal. It's not something it says here in the text, but you know what comes up. Puberty hits. There's one youthful passion, the ladies. Romance. What are some of the other ones? Social interaction, you know, what, where you stand in society. Are you part of the cool kids? Are you cool enough? I'm a big believer in being cool. But not when it's passionate. See someone serving it so passionately, they, got, they, they just got to. They just got to make it. It could be all about the arts, too. Young people, suddenly, for some reason, I was thinking this, I was, the music was always major for me growing up. And I'd run home from school, in grade school, this is in the 60s, uh, to turn on the radio, WYRE Baltimore, and listen to, I forget who did it, Daddy, let your hair hang down. I mean, early crossover, beatnik to rock, early rock, pre-Beatles, you know, sort of stuff. Because I really, from everything. And then it just got better and better. I mean, it really got better. If you got to live between, see, I was in grade school in the early 60s. And so some mid-60s through 1980, Remarkable, a remarkable advance in the funk, okay? And I realized the other day that I still really like music and I never listen to it. I don't have any music. Is there a way to put music on these? Because I, I wouldn't know how. I don't want my daughter showing me how. I don't want to find out. I don't want to own headphones. I don't want to link up Bluetooth with the car and play music. But I love music more than any of you. Because I'm cooler. Now, what happened to me? I got old, right? I got old and just said, well, okay. The youthful passion of the arts, the, the, the thing that are coming on that are new, the trends, there's nothing wrong with the ladies. There's nothing wrong with being cool. There's nothing wrong with having the trends in the music affect you. But watch out for them as passions. They are all passions the Lord gave, but that's why it says you cannot love them. Don't love these things. Do not live by these things, because this is what makes someone who designs his life on these and does not choose righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Have you thought about what you're devoting yourself to? Most of you are young. This is a, not a very old church. I'm the only, well, there's Scott and Brian and Glenda. Let's see who else is old. Smaldridge's, McGarry's. That's it, you know. We probably should have like a, like a, like to have youth groups. We should have an old, old group that gets together and whittles or something. Because that's what old people do. Roy's old too. Roy was a DJ. You know what a DJ is? You know what a radio is? <laughs> they don't know what a radio is. A couple things interested me I want you to be thinking about. One, I want you to get definitions. What do youthful passions mean to you? Because he has, Timothy's been told to shun them. And if you're being told, 
at least looking over his shoulder to shun something, you might want to not just say, well, I'm not going to bother with the definition because then it would apply to me. You wouldn't want the Bible applying to you. And pick up, aim at the righteousness, the faith, the love, and the peace. Do you have a solid definition, biblical definition, rational definition, something that says, when I say peace, I mean the Bible is a wonderful one for faith, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Am I aiming at that? Because it told me to aim at the righteousness, the faith, the love, and the peace. And not only that, here you are, here you sit. We are together. Why are we together? There are no rules. There's no membership. There's no dues you have to pay here. You're not getting any performance points for showing up. I hope you're here because you love one another. But our love is not just because we're a social group like the Rotary and we like to get together because we like the same games or something like that. It's along with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. We aim at these things, righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with these others who aim at the same thing. That's why we're together. We want to be the righteous of God. You come from all sorts of different theological backgrounds. I don't have a clue what they are. I hope you don't have a clue what mine are. And um, we might never talk about it in the next 30 years when I die. It'll be, you know, obviously in the program for the funeral, I will have, you know, a bunch of tick boxes of all the things I never spoke about, but I want to tell you after I can't get in trouble. Because it doesn't matter. We, we, we're after something that is past doctrine. We want to be along with those who call on the Lord from pure heart. Why am I saying this? Because verse 23, have nothing to do with stupid stupid, senseless controversies where we just destroyed the history of the Christian church. Right? You can start apostolic times. Stupid. I mean, he's writing this because people in the church are in stupid, senseless controversies. Now, again, what makes it a stupid, senseless controversy? Because the people in the controversies, you ever talk to somebody about whether the earth is flat? Especially somebody who might believe it is? Or someone maybe who holds a different political persuasion than you? Intentionally? Not just because it makes for good drinky party conversation, but they care? Have you ever talked to somebody who holds a different view of end times than you? Or the gifts of the Spirit? Or, I don't know, pick something. Stupid, senseless controversies. They don't seem stupid to the people in them. They are. They don't have, you might say, a rhyme nor reason, hence senseless. You cannot be truly informed about something that does not have sense. You just have, oh, you ever, um, I was talking to Brian Marr the other day, we were talking about this question, kind of a, a talk conversation. Uh, what would you write if you could write something? What was the most important thing that you could write? Brian Marr's idea was to uh, write a short booklet on answering the SJW. I wanted to come up with a kind of a guidebook to talking to an SJW. 
social justice warriors. Now, what we all we can all laugh about social justice warriors. We're in a college town, you know that they're, they're, they're screaming at the sky. They're losing their, you know, everything triggers them. But I want to warn you about something, you know, because you know we we feel a lot of us feel like well we got our America stuff worked out. And we, want, we understand capitalism, we understand democracy and Republican forms of government and all, all the rest. And we look at these children screaming at the sky. And we just say, too bad for you. You're dumb, you're senseless. We do the same thing. That's why there's trouble in the church. Because you know, verse 23, the end of it, have nothing to do with stupid, senseless controversies because you know they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Got that? Not only are you shun useful passions, but if you do not get rid of your stupid ideas, and believe me, how do you check? How do you know? Because you think your ideas are really good. Mine are great. You know, they're the most right thing you have never heard such right views. How do you know? Well, at least you know when someone comes up and shoves it. Because stupid ideas, senseless ideas, don't have an argument. And your little soul knows you don't have an argument when someone shoves your idea. And so what do you do when you're an SJW and somebody says something that you can't answer? You scream at them. Call them a racist a homophobe, whatever you want to call them. you gotta, you got to call them something. You've got to raise the emotional um, pitch. You have to be quarrelsome because that's how you win arguments that you don't know how to win sensibly because there's nothing better. You've been in these situations before when you knew your argument and you knew what they were going to say and you had the right response ready for them and you laid traps on the path because you do it so well. You had pat, you know, traps down various paths. They could turn any way they wanted, and you were going to get them. You knew the idea. You see Christ acting that way with the Pharisees, right? He'd look at them, and he'd say something. Watch them flip out. When you don't quarrel, you know because you have sense You've taken on truth. You know what truth will give you confidence, and it doesn't have to be defended. Wonderful thing about truth. But when you find yourself losing it, when you can't be in the discussion without your peace going away, your love going away, your righteousness going away, you become quarrelsome. Quarrelsomeness is the measure of the insensibility of your position, the stupidity of it. You don't have enough because nothing calms a man better than knowing his stuff. You ever watch Jordan Peterson? Non-believer. Pretty good thinker. I, I like his stuff. And he's, he's sitting there trying to work with, with people that are just being idiots. And he's, and he's got absolute confidence in what he's saying. It's amazing. If you want to speak this way, you better have not stupid and senseless ideas, 
because those ones that are, and they might be the right down the middle of your faith, it could be what you think about end times. It could be what you think about women's roles in the church. It could be what you think about, you know, dating. I don't care. Stuff. You could be absolutely sure, but you don't know why, so you got to yell at the other person. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kindly to everyone. Got it? Kindly to everyone. You can't be one, so you got to know what causes that one in you. When you lose it in an argument, you're losing it for a reason. I would suspect because you don't know what you think. You know the conclusion you made, but you don't know what you think. Go back and learn what you think and why. An apt teacher. So how can you be apt? That means able to, capable of communicating. What's the wonderful thing about knowing the truth and why? You can put it together. Everybody, anybody asked you for directions? Have you ever asked some people for directions? I pity you guys who, who just follow your phones where they're telling you to go, that woman, whoever she is. Because you will never you know, have to, one, look at a map and figure it out, two, be able to describe it to somebody else, right? You can't because you didn't pay attention. You just told, did what you were told. And you can't remember what she told you. How do I get to Rose Hours? And when you know how to get to Rose Hours, I mean, you know. I mean, that kind of, in 400 yards, you will turn right. You have confident instructions. There are people who think they can give you instructions. The Appalachian Hill Ipes that, you know, tell you, you know, when you pass so-and-so's barn and look at the gorseberry bush and go another half a league, they don't know. An apt teacher, forbearing. You know what's forbearing? Putting up with. Because you got to put up with the quarrelsome. You got to put up with the someone who comes to you and says, Well, I think that passage means something else. Okay, fine. We'll work with that. You forbear them, you let them have their say. You're patient with them. Because this is other than quarrelsomeness. Quarrelsomeness is your emotion coming to the fore because you know that what you care about, the position, is not adequately supported by the hero of the story, which is you. And so you got to get like a, some Nancy boy petulantly stamping your foot and insisting on it. Once you get past that, once you know the views, you can be apt, kindly, forbear, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Verse 25. Got that? Kindly to everyone. Everyone. That means that philosophy, social professor, whatever it is who hates God and is trying to ruin your life, kindly to them, too. And, and it doesn't help to have their social justicing be matched by the quarrelsome puritanical problem child in the room who's arguing the same quarrelsome way. Quarreling is not one of our options. God may perhaps grant that they will repent 
I want to address something right now because some of you might be reformed. Others might not be. I don't want that verse to become a cause for a quarrel. God granting them repentance. The basic theme is you don't get to repent yourself. God gives you repentance. Okay, fine. Okay, fine. As long as we accept, do what you want with the passage, as long as we accept all of the things that it's telling us have a say in this moment. God, obviously, is being appealed to that in some way that he would grant repentance to this person. But he just told you to be a certain way that you would have an effect on the person. Well, if it was just God granting them repentance, why don't we just go, uh, forget all that about treating people nice and quarreling because God is going to grant them repentance. God, God could, but what portion of it is it? You're actually concerned about whether he does or not. God may, perhaps. You may, perhaps, learn to not be quarrelsome aptly teach them, forbear with their silly ideas, and correct them with gentleness, why them? If God is granting the repentance, why am I correcting them? Well, because they're involved too. You're involved. You're being told to be a part of this. You're to be hoping in God. You're to be hoping that you're going to present the best possible thing and that they're involved and come to know the truth and that they may escape. They are going to exercise some agency as well. <laughs> and it doesn't get, so it's, the list gets longer. You're an agent. They're an agent. God is an agent. And the devil. They may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. We've got all sorts of agents here. One of them trying to stop the guy from being changed, you trying to convince him to be changed, him having the obligation to change, and God granting that the change might happen. What degree all of those things are going to play in the situation, I don't know. We're told they're all there. But until we know what all those theirs are, they're all in the passage. And they're all in the passage in such a way that to the degree you don't know something, I didn't mention this earlier. Stupid and senseless controversies. We're the big house. We know all about it. We have fought over which end to open the ice cream container from because it was, because it was a stupid idea. We brought it up. Someone, I remember this was 30-some years ago, but I think someone got a little annoyed because the right way was not being agreed upon by everybody else. They found out how much they cared about a stupid idea. But one of the things, one of the things that happens with a stupid idea, because you can't dodge them forever, and you might have some you didn't know, you've got to watch the quarrelsomeness, and one of the things that gives you a greater health about, you might say, enjoying a silly conversation about a silly idea is that if you understand the humor of what you're doing and you understand the limits, if you understand that you don't know what you're doing and you're just winging it here, you'll have humility and humor about it. Once you start thinking too much of yourself, you start to think that they have to agree with you. You have to convince them. 
and then you become quarrelsome. Now, <clears throat> it goes on into chapter 3. When, when Paul's writing to Timothy, it's a, it's a pastoral letter. It's personal. It's not to a church. It's to a guy that he has ministered with over years. And, he's, and saying, okay, this is the, way, the direction I want you to think. This is what I want you to parse out. And you know, Timothy knows better than we, perhaps, ready definitions of faith and love and peace and righteousness. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of stress. Please do not see the phrase, last days, and go, the end of the freaking world. We don't even know what it is the last days of. Last days of the age, last days of whatever. Or days that are at the end, at the end times, after the old covenant, into the new covenant. I don't know. It could be the end of the world. But it seems like he's facing these things now. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, inhuman, implacable, slanderers, profligates, fierce, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, tidying it all up, holding to the form of religion, but denying the power of it. In red, avoid such people. You say, what I don't have in the general list of ready definitions for faith, love, peace. When he gets on to sin, boy, there's a word for everything. You might not have picked up that you got guilty on some of those things. You don't have to be guilty on them all. And it doesn't mean, frankly, it's not probably your life in the world. You're going down to the, you know, co-op and talking to the hippies. This seems like it's people that, in Paul's mind, are going to be in the church, right? Holding the form of religion. Once again, this is why the history of the Christian church is such hell. Because they have been lovers of self and money. Have you ever noticed that? They've been proud. Matter of fact, you can put your face on the back of a book you wrote bigger than Jesus. You know, it's, I mean, it's... They sell the personalities. They sell the people. It was never me. I haven't had a chance to be proud. But I would, it would be difficult, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? A lot of people mentioning your name. People recognizing you on three. No, no, I'm just Evan Wilson. Thank you. Arrogant. That's what happens to them. Some of you have good stories about pastors that went around the bend in arrogance because they got attended to. Abusive, disobedient to their parents. You ever known a Christian kid in a church that was disobedient to their parents? Was it you? Ungrateful. Just not saying thank you to God or anyone. 
inhuman. You know, if you read too much John Locke, you really won't be comfortable with the Bible. Because the Bible will say, these people are, these people are animals. These people are inhuman. Oh, you could never say that. No one is better or worse than anyone. St. Paul says, ah, contraire. These people are a lot worse. They're so worse, so much worse, that I'm going to recommend at the end that this practice, this kind of life, you should just avoid them. Says that, avoid such people. Timothy, get the letter going, oh, oh yeah, I know these guys. Avoid them, okay, all right. Stay away from them. Especially if you're going to sense, look at this list, start to define your terms and say, is this really what's going on in the Ephesian church with Timothy around? That you have these people, lovers of pleasure. Because this goes back to the question of how do you preserve yourself or purify yourself from the ignoble? You have to shun youthful passions. This is all the self, the person that is driving forward to make themselves something. For among them are those who make their way into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and swayed by various impulses who will listen to anybody and can never come to a knowledge of the truth. What a great verse, verse that is. It just hangs people up. The, the passionate teachers, the people that are selling themselves, grounding themselves in themselves and in their urges, rather than in reason or in the scripture or the righteousness of God. And they know where to go. They know where to find passionate, passionate people, people who want to be passionate for the Lord. And you want to say, watch out, just, just don't say it's evil to say on a church sign, you know, when they say passionate for Jesus, I'm out of here. And not that you can't be, but only after you've been righteous, loving, faithful, and peaceful. Only after that which is solid has been expressed in you. Because if you're the passionate one, the swayed by various impulses, those women are just standing around waiting to get suckered by some guy who's going to come into their household and because they're in sin and they're thinking by their passions, they did not make themselves noble by purifying themselves from youthful passions. They think that it makes them interesting. You ever know women like that that think the drama in their life makes them interesting? Or they're laughing at everything? You want to just slap them. Now I'm a pastor. I'm not allowed to slap people. But uh, there are some. People who think that if they can just show some passion, well, you also, you're saying, I'm showing a weakness here. I'm showing a susceptibility to being led astray by a cult leader. Because they'll listen to anybody and never arrive at a knowledge of the truth. And they'll walk around chattering about all that stuff that they were told and get annoyed by people disagreeing with them because it'll be a passionately held view, not a sensibly held view. It'll be a stupid view. But they will hold it because they, their teacher thought it passionately and they were taught it because they were passionate. 
as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. Janus and Jambres, they're not called that in the Old Testament. That's the Egyptian wizards. They're called that in pseudepigraphal Jewish writings. There's a book of Janus and Jambres. Um, the Jews had, over the history, named, whether they even remembered it all the way from back then, um, named these wizards. Paul is using those names. Opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men of corrupt mind and counterfeit faith. Do you love the truth? Daniel and I were talking about it the other day, about people who love being in an argument with a good friend because all the things that are right about linking them to the truth are there, and they both want the truth. They want truth. They don't want to be right. They don't want to win. If you want to win, you're not in the business of thinking about ideas. You want to be about the truth. These people oppose the truth. Their minds are corrupt. Their minds are ruined, uh, perverted somehow. And their faith is a counterfeit one. It's not a sincere faith. It's not an actual faith. And I have seen in 66 years quite a few religious people whose uh, faith, it even sounded counterfeit. You could hear the clink of the coin. It sounded like Aluminum when it hit the counter, you know, it wasn't gold. Now, I'm not going to make judgments on the basis of the sound of their voice. One thing you'd be sure of that they will not get very far, verse 9, for their folly will be plain to all as it was that of those two men. There's not just a judgment in the end, there's a judgment now. There's People know this is going on. People know that there are cads and bounders out there and that sometimes they run the churches. People who have not defined even righteousness, love, faith, peace. They haven't. They haven't said, you know, I'm wrong with this. I was talking to somebody, I forget what it was. I know I've talked about this for somebody, but this is my, sort of my last point. You've got to not only be drawn by the teaching of that which is good, you have got to overtly reject what you have done that is wrong. Shunning youthful passions. You've got to know what they are, and you've got to go about shunning them. Avoiding such people, you got to go about avoiding them. you got to undo the wrong thing. Not just admire the good thing, because you're wondering why I can never get at the good thing. Well, sometimes because I haven't renounced the thing that held me before. Renounce what held you before. If you've you got a you know, problem with your passions, you get on your knees before God and not just confess your sin, but confess the fact that you worship at the altar of your passions and you would like God to know that you know that you're doing that wrong. It starts to incur to you that when your mind says, be stupid and senseless, be operational by your urges, just Christianize them. If you don't start with confessing them, 
If you don't start with, you might say, what, what do I affirm and what do I deny? Are you clear about what you're denying? Are you clear about what you're affirming? Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful. You are good to us. Help us uh, stay away from a quarrelsome existence that our love together, our body life, regardless of our theologies, would be good because it is dressed in righteousness and love, faith and peace. Thank you for what we have together. In your son's name, amen.